Well, we do appreciate the team leading us tonight. And it's later than usual. All right, but we're not going to cut the service short. Uh, we're going to continue just with the scripture reading and, and the preaching. And then just a reminder afterwards, the opportunity next door, we're going to enjoy some fellowship around some refreshments and some eats as well. But when you turn in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and uh, we're going to read just a few verses there from verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So just so far, uh, the reading of God's Word. Lord, we have worshipped and we continue to worship. Now, as we come to your Word, do pray that your Spirit would uh, lead us. Lord, help me in the words that I speak, that I would do so simply and clearly, but Lord, accurately in presenting a message from this passage yet tonight. To each of us, Lord, as we uh, face the realities of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, pray that that faith would be strengthened and perhaps even for the first time tonight begin in somebody's life, we ask, as we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to think back a little bit uh, in my own life, and I do so tonight because I understand that tomorrow university uh, starts formally. Lectures are beginning, students have come back to town, students are coming back to town, and will begin uh, classes and begin to make new friends, be exposed to new ideas, uh, new teaching as their university year unfolds. Well, I think back in my own life and back even to my schooling days, where we started each day with a much friendlier uh, attitude toward Christianity. Those of us who are older yet tonight will remember that uh, at school, every single day, we started with the Lord's Prayer. Once a week, we had a religious instruction period, and it was teaching of the Christian faith. Thinking back to the days, those days, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC, featured daily devotions. Again, there were those devotions who were presented by mostly evangelical Christians. It's not like that anymore. Things have changed. That kind of support that was there, in certainly in some circles, for Christianity and, and even for Christian ministry has by and large gone. You live and we all live today in a secular uh, world where a worldview is being presented very, very different to the Christian worldview. 
I would suggest to you tonight that you currently will face in these coming days at university an undermining of almost anything Christian. You're not going to find support in the classroom. The unborn uh, babies are seen as disposable commodities, uh, mere clumps of cells, and no longer seen as a creation in the image of God. Marriage will be told to you as being different, being redefined, and now marriage can be between any consenting uh, person, regardless of gender. I think evolution has become almost an accepted fact, uh, assumption that everybody uh, discards Genesis chapter 1 as merely mythical. And, and these are the kinds of things that you are going to find as you confront society. And so the very important question we need to ask, especially those who are believers, is does the shift away from having this supportive context where we have those who believe around us, where now we are at a place where it seems like the odds are stacked against Christianity and against Christians, is there any hope? Is there any prospect of spreading the gospel ministry in today's context? Or are you simply going to hide in a corner and hope that nobody asks what you believe? Well, I want to encourage you tonight and to say that there is hope. There are prospects. And we need to understand, again, as we turn to the Scriptures, that people will continue to believe. There will be those who respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And, and the reason, the reason simply and thankfully, is because the, the work, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful to have gifted and talented people. We spoke about that with the induction of Mark tonight. But, but the Holy Spirit has been at work, is at work, and will continue to be at work, changing the lives of men and women, younger people, older people, people at school, at university, and even in the latter stages of their lives. So I do want to say tonight, very much uh, up front, that, that God makes the impossible possible. That which we think is not possible certainly is possible and achievable because God is at work. And so humanly speaking, we can look back in history and we see, well, the church should not have survived the first century. Twelve uh, ordinary disciples, twelve, eleven, in fact, ordinary men, uh, the church has grown through its ups and downs. And, and, and today the church is spread all over the world. It, it has survived. It will continue to survive. It will survive to the very end of the age. God does what He says He will do. And so support or no support from people around us, whether there is cultural openness or uh, closeness or antagonism or whether you're in the Bible Belt in the southern states of America or where you're in the Gaza Strip in the Middle East, the, the problem is the same and the solution is the same. People are dead in their transgressions and sins. Problem. But God makes them alive in Christ. So younger people are really, especially to you this evening, I want to encourage you as you face the future. 
So God is at work. But where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? And, and, and there, there is a process that is unfolding. Do we simply sit back and, and let go and, and let God? Or do we have some responsibility? How do we tackle gospel ministry in this challenging era that we're living in in 2022? An era where there are people who are many self-sufficient, uh, independent, and, and uh, isolated achievers, and, and, and even people you will discover who have no or little sense of the need of God or salvation. How do we do ministry? How do you do ministry on the campus of the University of Pretoria or on the streets of Sunnyside where there is a melting pot of, of nations, of cultures, of religions of the world? A spread of the poorest and even the richest peoples uh, in the city, students and professionals and immoral and self-righteous. There are all sorts of people on our doorstep. Well, I'm going to try and be brief in this message tonight. God is at work, but we too need to be at work. And I believe that we can learn, we do learn from the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Athens. And I'm going to just give an aspect of this ministry tonight, and then God willing, I'm going to continue next Sunday night as well. And so, to encourage you tonight, you will be used by God in gospel ministry when, like the Apostle Paul, your spirit is stirred into action. I want you to consider that particular aspect of verse 16. We, we know as believers there is a great commission. Jesus' command to his disciples to make disciples of the nations, absolutely crucial, absolutely important. We need to be obedient in, in listening and obeying to Jesus. But looking at this passage, learning from the Apostle Paul, I cannot help noticing that there are some deep-seated convictions that, 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 that seem to be firing Paul up to get him to do gospel ministry even in an extremely challenging situation. Paul has some deep convictions that provoke him, that stir him, that, that move him into gospel ministry action. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so like Paul, and just three things I'm going to share with you tonight, you must not believe the lie of false religion. Having arrived in Athens, and it had not been an easy road for Paul to get to Athens. It had almost been like running a gauntlet of persecution. Uh, had been in prison in Philippi, leaving Thessalonica at night because his life was under threat. I would have expected Paul, humanly speaking, to take a break. Take it easy. Go, go, go and hide somewhere because of this, this continual uh, pressure upon him because of the antagonism of the crowds that he was speaking to. But we don't read that. Instead of resting, he saw, he was observing, he was looking around to see what it was in the city. He saw that the city was full of idols. Something like 
what we would see in our own city, spiritual confusion of the Athenians, spiritual confusion of those who live in Pretoria. Commentator by the name of Davies puts it like this. He, he describes Athens. He says, every gateway and porch carried its protecting God. Every street, every square, every purlieu had its sanctuaries. And a Roman poet bitterly remarked that it was easier in Athens to find gods than men. It was not an easy place to do ministry. It seemed impossible to make any kind of progress. But the sight of, of the city full of idols hits Paul in the face, and it leaves him feeling grieved and distressed and, and agitated because this city of people had given themselves to the lie of false religion. Flawed philosophy had, a philosophy had captivated their minds. And here's the point. It weighs heavily on Paul's heart. He doesn't just walk away. He knows, he knows in his heart he, there is a conviction. He knows that there is a, a God in heaven, that God created men and women to be worshippers. That God commands uh, men and women that he and he alone ought to be the object of devotion and worship. He knows that. He's convinced about that. He's convicted about that. And so he knows that these other gods, these idols, these objects of devotions are nothing. They are merely a figment of these people's imagination to be of any value. They, they are fabrications of their own corrupted and, and, and uh, depraved hearts. They appear to promise much, but it's a delusion. It's a deception, giving people a false sense of purpose and security. And so he has convictions. He has convictions, a deep-seated conviction that there is only one true God. Verse 24 speaks there, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You believe in this? This is nothing. There is one God in heaven that is the one true God. This one true God warned people of a previous generation back in Isaiah about the lie of idolatry, idolatry and false worship. Isaiah 41 verse 29, Behold, they, these are idols, are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And so, friends, I'll ask you tonight. It's one thing to say you believe, but are you really convinced about what you believe about God? Are you convinced, like the Apostle Paul, that there is one true God, one true God who demands exclusive worship, that He is to be the object of devotion and worship of His creation? Now, the implications. If you really believe that, you need to know that your Muslim or Jehovah's Witness, or Mormon, or Hindu, or Universalist, or nominal Christian, or deceived Christian, or atheist, is lost without God. And it should stir something in your heart. If you are convinced that there is only one true living God, and I want to move on then again like the Apostle Paul, you can't avoid the prospect 
or the prospects of false religion in your conviction. You see, there are some things that are statistically probable or not probable. You may or may not be killed in a motor car accident if you wear a seatbelt or not. You can take a chance. It's not like that when it comes to the issue of religion and true religion. There's something far worse regarding the prospects of those who are caught and deceived and hooked into false religion. And so Paul had this deep-seated conviction that the prospect of those who are deceived by false religion have a definite and horrible destiny. Verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Then he gives the reason, verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He really believed that there will be a day when every single person from every single generation down through the ages will be judged. Each one will be measured, not according to our standard, not what we think may be acceptable or, 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 or we could convince God to, to, to find acceptable. No, no. Each one will be measured according to the standard of God's perfect righteousness, God's perfect holiness. And it's an issue that Jesus repeatedly raised in his own ministry. He warned in Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And so there will be two groups of people, and maybe even among us tonight, there are two groups of people with different prospects. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, isn't that frightening? And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Do you see the weightiness of true religion versus false religion, people who are deceived. And so again, I ask you tonight, as younger people, many of you younger people here tonight, are you convinced about the judgment by God of all men and women? And we always need to bring that closer to home. Are you convinced, not just you, but, but those that you love, your family, your parents, your, your grandparents, your siblings, uh, your neighbors, uh, your, your colleague at work, or perhaps your student friends. Every man and woman down through the ages will stand before God and face judgment. And there's a, a, a consequential conviction. Are you convinced about the condemnation that will result in being away from the presence of God for those who do not savingly know God? So I'm challenging you tonight about convictions. You must not believe the lie of false religion. People will seek to convince you that it's okay. All roads lead to God or to heaven. But secondly, you cannot avoid the prospects of false religion. But thirdly, you believe that God has made provision for sinners. This is the gospel ministry that we 
stand for. You see, it's, it is helpful, and we do need to point out that people are being deceived or that people are in trouble with God, naturally speaking. But it's also necessary that we are convinced and convicted to give them the solution to the dilemma. We cannot avoid judgment. There's a certainty of that judgment, and again, I refer to the passage uh, reinforced by this historical event that, uh, of Jesus not being dead but raised from the dead. So the living Lord Jesus, verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by who? By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance uh, to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus lives. His bones are not lying rotting in a grave in Palestine. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He has responsibility to judge all of humanity. But, there's a but, there's a continuation. There is more in this reference to the resurrection of Jesus, something of what we celebrated at this communion table. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. And the point is that the Apostle Paul is absolutely convinced redemption from sin has been accomplished by Jesus. Deep-seated conviction that God has secured, conviction, uh, secured forgiveness for repented, repentant sinners. Verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so are you convinced about this gospel provision that God has made provision for the worst of sinners, for the worst of those any whosoever will repent, those who are liars or adulterers or blasphemers or thieves or murderers, rapists, the, the sexually perverted, all of us. Nothing more Nothing less, Christ alone. Are you convinced that people need to be convicted of their sins? And when they call out, not knowing what to do, they need to hear what the Apostle Peter told the crowds on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you convinced of the truth of John chapter 3, verse 18? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So let me conclude. I am burdened about the issue of convictions. It's so easy to say, I believe. But do you really believe are you able to go forward armed with convictions that there is one true living God? Armed with the conviction that there is to be eternal destruction away from the presence of God for those who do not believe? Are you armed with the conviction of God's provision through Jesus Christ for repentant sinners? Well, I think these things burned in the Apostle Paul's heart. It did not leave him idle. It did not leave him passive. It did not leave him uncaring. I read a biography some time ago now of a missionary by the name of John G. Patton. Uh, 
he was uh, living in Scotland, Glasgow, and he was challenged, he was moved in his heart uh, because of these strong convictions for a particular uh, group of people in the New Hebrides, uh, in fact, a group of people who were cannibals. He had heard of these people, and this is what he said. The wail and claims of the heathen were constantly sounding in my ears. I saw them perishing for lack of knowledge of the true God and His Son, Jesus. And so what did Patton do? Well, he acted with those convictions about the lie of false religion, about the prospects of those who are deceived and perishing and have the prospect of perishing in hell. But he believed also about the conviction of the provision of salvation in Christ. And so he went. Long ministry, hard ministry that he underwent. And so, young people, I ask you the question tonight, what's your ambition? Many of you are believers, professing believers. Is it your ambition to live the American dream? Have you come simply to university so that one day you will own a pretty little house with a white picket fence, a couple of children occupied with Xbox, and mom and dad making money, and a 4x4 in the driveway? Is that it? Surely not. Surely not. Or do you see the wonderful privilege, the wonderful love of God in providing salvation and seeing therefore family members and friends and colleagues and nations who are deceived and destined in need of good news which you have in your hands. And so I asked the question at the beginning, how will you be used? How can you be used in gospel ministry? Only if you have deep-seated convictions. Otherwise, you're going to just pass people by. I want to close with uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you may have read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And uh, Charles Spurgeon quotes uh, something about this book, about two of the characters, and uh, asks the question, and I want to ask the question, are you like the character pliable? Or are you like Christian? Sadly, today I find many professing Christians are going with the spirit of the age and culture, selling their souls in exchange for popularity and self satisfaction. Well, this is how Spurgeon puts it As pliable and Christian find themselves walking together toward the narrow gate, we see the stark contrast between the two pilgrims. One is burdened, the other isn't. One is clutching a book that is light uh, to his path, to the Bible. The other is guideless. One is on the journey in pursuit of deliverance from besetting sins and rest for his soul. The other is on the journey in order to obtain future delights that temporarily dazzle his mind. One is slow and, and plodding because of his, great, of, his, of his great weight and a sense of his own unrighteousness. The other is light-footed and impatient to obtain all the benefits of heaven. One is in motion because his soul has been stirred up to both fear and hope. The other is dead to any spiritual fears, longings, or aspirations. One is seeking God. The other is seeking self-satisfaction. One is a true pilgrim. The other is false 
and fading. Which of the two are you? Pliable or Christian? Lord, we stand in need of your continual work in us, your spirited work. And I do pray as we hear your word, as we study your word, and Lord, even as we experience the blessing of your salvation, that we would, Lord, understand something of the weight of what is at stake in this world that we live. And I pray that you would go before us, each of us, Lord, in our respective spheres of life, whether it be at the university, whether it be in the workplace, or even in places of leisure. Help us to have those deep-seated convictions. May we not be those who are simply pliable, fitting into whatever the occasion may bring. And we pray this, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom and your name. Amen.